All right. Well, hey, it's, uh, it's awesome to have you guys here at the Medina East Campus. Welcome. And uh, like Colin mentioned just a moment ago, if you're a guest with us, if it's your first time here, or if you're a returning guest and so you're back or maybe it's been a while since you've been here, we do just want to extend a very special welcome. Thanks for being here. And of course, if you're joining us on live stream right now, uh, we just want to say hi to you as well. Thanks for joining us that way. If you're someone who is sick on the couch, which we know is a lot of people right now, uh, we're just sending our love, sending our prayers, and uh, just thank that you're able to be with us this way, and that's really good. But, um, but if you are a guest, if you're just joining us, we are actually in the second week of a series that we started that's called The Way of Jesus. And very simply, what we're doing in this series is we are actually working our way through uh, the New Testament book of Luke. And so we're actually reading and studying and, uh, and gleaning from the incredible gospel of, of Luke. And basically, uh, the gospel of Luke outlines the life of Jesus from his birth all the way to his death and his resurrection and everything in between. And so we're just kind of taking that journey together as we're going through the gospel of Luke. Now, some people have asked the question, why are we going through Luke? Why, why Luke? Why now? And uh, here's what we said. We said the reason that we're looking at the gospel of Luke is for the very same reason that the gospel of Luke was written. And so we are actually told by Luke, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke, why he wrote this account of Jesus. And here's what Luke said in Luke chapter one, verses three and four. He said, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account so that, here's the reason, you might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so we said that the reason that Luke writes his gospel, his expressed purpose is he says, I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught regarding Jesus. In other words, here's what we said. Luke wants us to know that in times of uncertainty, there are certain things you can be certain of. Uh, Luke wants us to know that in times of uncertainty, there are places of certainty. And I don't know about you, but I think that this is a very timely and a very relevant message to us. I think if you could pick one word to describe the time that we live in right now, maybe the past couple of years, if I asked you to pick one word, my guess is that on the top 10 words that you would pick, somewhere on that list, you probably would find the word uncertain. Uh, we, are, we live in a marked time of unique uncertainty. I know in the conversations I have with a lot of people, a lot of you, I hear that. I hear a lot of uncertainty. And so when I talk to students about what does school look like this semester, when I talk to college students about what does this semester look like for you, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty around those conversations. When I talk to people about their jobs or about the economy, it seems like there is this sense of, uh, of uncertainty. When we talk about our country, when we talk about uh, the different issues that are polarizing, it seems like there is a lot of uncertainty that surrounds those things. And so we live in a marked time of unique uncertainty. We always live in uncertainty, but it seems like maybe in a unique way right now, we live in a time of uncertainty. And what I have found is that when we find ourselves in places that are uncertain, a lot of times we grasp to find something that is certain, right? We, we're always looking for something that we can firmly put our hope, that we can, uh, we can build our lives on. We're looking for a place that we can stand that is not gonna topple or is not going to collapse. And I think what Luke is trying to tell us in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is that place. 
that Jesus is a secure and he is a certain place that you can stand on, that you can build your life upon, that he is a solid rock that you can build your foundation upon. And so it's for that reason that we're going through the Gospel of Luke. It's also for that reason that we've invited everybody who's part of our church. And even if you're not part of our church, and even if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who's investigating Jesus, we've been encouraging everybody to read through the Gospel of Luke. And so basically we said, we want, we want to resource you and we want to encourage you throughout this entire series to join us and to personally read through the Gospel of Luke. And so we've created some reading plans. We've created some resources to help surround that. You can get those at the Welcome Center, so you can check that out after service. Or you can go right to our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org backslash Luke, and you're gonna find a bunch of stuff about the Gospel of Luke, a reading plan and those kind of things. And let me just say too, that if you haven't jumped in on the reading plan for Luke yet, it is definitely not too late. We are not very far into it. You can quickly catch up, and we'd love for you uh, to maybe do that. But today, as we're continuing in this uh, series in the Gospel of Luke, we're gonna find ourselves in Luke chapter four. So I wanna invite you, if you would, why don't you get your Bible out right now and open it up or open up your Bible app. And if you would find Luke 4, that's where we're gonna be going here today. Now, if you did not bring a Bible with you, page 834 is where you're gonna find that in the Bibles under the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of ours, make that a gift. We'd love for you to have a Bible. Okay, so Luke 4 is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're locating Luke 4, uh, we are going to see here uh, uh, in this passage a sermon that nearly killed Jesus. All right, so just a quick just a quick kind of preview of what we're gonna see in this passage. You're gonna see that in this passage that it begins with people praising Jesus, people amazed by Jesus, people even impressed by Jesus, and you're gonna see that it's going to end with a mob trying to throw Jesus off of a cliff. That's what we're gonna see today. Now, let me just say, uh, I have preached some rough sermons in my life, as some of you know, and I've gotten some you know, I've gotten some nasty emails and I have gotten some harsh criticism, but I have never had it where after a sermon, people tried to take me up to Whip's ledges and throw me off. That hasn't happened yet, okay? But here's the question. This is what happens with Jesus. It starts with them adoring him and praising him and it ends with them ready to throw him off of a cliff. And the question is, why? What did he say or what did he do that caused them to react so strongly and to change their opinions so quickly, all right? That's the question. And here's what we're gonna do. As we read today's passage, I actually want to encourage you and I wanna invite you, if you would, to not just read this passage with me. I actually wanna invite you not just to read this passage, but if you would, would you allow this passage to read you? And here's, here's what I mean by that. I think that this passage doesn't just tell us something that happened 2,000 years ago. I think this passage is actually gonna to reveal to us something that happens, that it happens, it continues to happen. How is it that people go from a place of, of just friendly interest and even adoration of Jesus Christ to coming to a place where now they wanna reject him and oust them from their life altogether? How does that happen? And I think this passage is gonna shed some light on that. In fact, what we're gonna talk about today very specifically is I wanna talk about reasons Reasons that we resist or reject Jesus. That's what I wanna talk about. Reasons that we, and by we, I just mean humans. I mean humanity. I mean them 2,000 years ago, and I mean us today in this room. What are the reasons that we resist and we reject Jesus? And I think in this passage, we're gonna see four of those reasons. Now, there's more than that, but in this passage today, I just wanna show us four. So as we work through today's passage, 
Um, what I want to do is I just want to, to glean these as we sort of read through the passage. So we're going to start in verse 14. Uh, but before we read verse 14, let me give you a quick recap. Okay, so if you've been reading through the reading plan, you probably have, uh, this, this is what you'd be familiar with. Luke 1 and 2 tells us the birth narrative of Jesus. So Luke 1 and 2 tells us about Jesus' birth. It tells us a little bit about his childhood, but not much. Then when you get to Luke chapter 3, Jesus is now a grown-up. And so he's an adult. The Bible's going to say that he's baptized by this guy named John the Baptist. And the Bible's going to say that in that baptism, Jesus is now empowered by the Holy Spirit. So immediately, the Bible's going to say the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. This is in Luke 4. Jesus is tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. He passes that test with flying colors. And now the Bible says, after this, Jesus is going to begin his ministry. This is where we're going to pick it up. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, Jesus now launches his ministry. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All right, so I want you to notice this. The Bible's going to say Jesus begins his ministry, and as he does that, he begins to notice, he begins to gain a reputation. And the Bible says that not only is he growing in popularity, but he's also growing in favor. So everyone's praising him. They're saying good stuff about him. People are adoring him. They're like, this guy's powerful. This guy's doing some good stuff, right? Now, once you notice what happens in verse 16, because this is where we're gonna really start honing in. So verse 16, it says this. Then Jesus went to Nazareth. Now, remember, Nazareth was where he had been brought up. So now Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes to the place where he would have grown up, the place he would have went to school, where everyone would have known him. So Jesus goes back to his hometown, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. All right, so let me just hit pause here real quick, and I just want you to get this picture in your mind with me for just a moment, okay? So Jesus starts his ministry. He's growing in favor. He's growing in reputation. He goes back to his hometown, and the Bible tells us that in his hometown, he goes to his hometown synagogue. Now, synagogue, if you're not familiar with that, basically it's like this. It's not exactly like this, but it's basically like the Jewish version of a church is what it would be. And we actually know a little bit of what a first century synagogue would have looked like. I'll actually show you a picture. Uh, this, is a, um, this is a reconstruction of a first century synagogue. And basically how things worked in a synagogue was you had to have a group of Jewish people, at least 10 of them, for it to be considered synagogue. And what they would do is this would be the place where they would read from the Old Testament, they'd read from the Bible, and then they would expound and they would teach on the things that they read. And so in a synagogue, what would happen is a person would read from a scroll. So, you know, we have, our Bibles are like books, not, not them, it was like a scroll. And so they would read from a scroll, and then afterwards, the teacher would actually sit down, and the rest of the people would stand up, and that person would teach. And so now, you know, here I stand and you sit. In the synagogue, the teacher would sit and everyone else would stand. I was actually thinking about that. I was like, you know, I actually kind of like that. I think that, uh, I think we need to start doing that here at Grace, you know, just to, you know, be more biblical and stuff. So, uh, but that's how they would do it. So I want you to notice Jesus goes to the synagogue. Now check this out. The Bible says that they gave him the scroll of Isaiah. It's an Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. And he, now notice this, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus takes the scroll and he deliberately locates a specific spot in the book of Isaiah. And what is it? Well, this is what he goes on to read. 
The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so here's where Jesus reads from. Now this spot, some of you have a footnote in your Bible, and if you do, it'll tell you that the place that Jesus is reading from is Isaiah 61. I think this is really significant. Think about this. Jesus takes the scroll. Isaiah is a big book. It's 66 chapters. He intentionally finds this one spot in Isaiah 61. Now, here's what I want you to know. This passage right here, this would have been a passage that was deeply familiar to the Jewish audience that he was talking to, and it would have been one that was deeply significant. And here's why. This passage is what, uh, what, what the Jewish people would call a messianic prophecy what they would call that. Now, you may have heard that before, but the term Messiah is actually a word that just means the anointed one or the chosen one. And so in in the Jewish way of thinking, they believe that the Old Testament taught, and it does, that there's going to be one who's going to come, who is chosen by God, and he is going to be the one who's going to establish a kingdom that never ends, and he is going to be one who liberates God's people from their enemies. And he is going to be the one. Basically, if you think about like, uh, you guys ever see the Matrix? And remember what they call Neo? Neo is the one. He is the one. Well, the Jewish people believed there was going to be one. The one was going to come, the chosen one. And he would liberate us all from the Matrix and he would bring it down. And that's basically what they believed. And so Jesus reads this passage, which they would have been very familiar with, which is a messianic prophecy, which was written 700 years before Jesus. And now what does Jesus say? Well, look what happens next. The Bible says, then Jesus rolled up the scroll. So get this, he reads it, rolls it back up, hands it to the attendant, and then Jesus does what? He sits down. Now, we know why that's important, right? It'd be the equivalent of him getting on stage. Jesus sits down, he sits in a place of authority, And the Bible says, and everyone, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So you can feel the anticipation here. The people are like, what is he going to say about that very important passage? And then this is what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. He starts his sermon. This is how he begins. He said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I'm just telling you, man, that right there, that is a bold and audacious statement. Let me tell you what Jesus just did. Jesus basically just read a passage about the Messiah that was written 700 years before this. Then he gets up, rolls it back over, hands it to the guy, and then gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen, that's me. That's me. I'm just telling you, this right here would be the cinematic equivalent of the moment where Tony Stark says to everybody, I am Iron Man, right? It's that moment. And the place would have gone crazy when he would have said such device. Now, I think that right here in this passage, we actually see exposed for us one of the reasons why many people resist or reject Jesus. And I think it's this. I think one of the reasons that many people resist and reject Jesus, and many people today, is because of his claims. It's because of some of the stuff he says about himself. Now, I don't know how seriously you've ever studied the words of Jesus before, But I'm just going to tell you, Jesus said some very audacious and some very outrageous things about himself. Um, Here in this passage, Jesus says that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited chosen one that is sent by God. Uh, In other places, Jesus is going to say stuff like this. He's going to say, I and the Father am one, declaring himself to be one with God. 
In another place, in John chapter 8, you know what Jesus says? He says, before Abraham was even born, I am. It's the things that he said about himself. This is the reason I think that some people choke on Jesus. I think this is the reason some people reject and resist Jesus. You talk about taking Jesus as a good teacher. A lot of people are okay with that. You talk about interacting with Jesus as a life coach. A lot of people take no issue with that. You talk about Jesus being a rebel or a revolutionary, and I think a lot of us like that. But the moment you start talking about Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God and the one in which all things were made through, in, for, and by, which is what Colossians 1 says, well, the temperature drops in moments like that. And I think this is one of the reasons that many people will reject or resist Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I can't help but on this point but quote from C.S. Lewis and I just got to say, this is a quote that I acknowledge I myself have overused. But the reason I have overused this quote is because it's so awesome. And so here's what C.S. Lewis said in just his landmark book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read Mere Christianity, you need to pick it up. Here's what he said. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the kind of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And so you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. I think he nailed it. You know, I think if you actually come to Jesus on his terms, he's asking you to grapple with the things that he says about himself. One of the reasons that people choke on Jesus and reject him and resist him is because of his claims, the things that he said about himself. If you're a person who's investigating Jesus and you're here today, I'd really encourage you to, to, to take Jesus at his word, to really grapple with some of the things that he says about himself. But interestingly, what I want you to see today is that this, in this passage that we're reading, this is actually not the reason they tried to kill Jesus. Now, there's other passages where this is the reason they try to kill Jesus, but not this one, not this one, which actually brings me to the second reason I think that many people resist or reject Jesus, and it's this our expectations. It's because of our expectations. Now, I just want you to notice in this passage um, what Jesus goes on to say here. So Jesus says, basically, I'm the Messiah. It's basically what he just said. And I want you to notice the crowd's response. So here's how the crowds respond. All spoke well of him. Now, that's interesting. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. I just got to tell you, I think this is really interesting. You would think that when Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, that would be the point that they would try to throw him over a cliff and be like, who do you think you are? But that actually isn't it. That actually wasn't it. The Bible says that these people spoke well of him and they were amazed at the gracious things that he said. Now, why is that? I think that's really interesting. Well, let let me tell you why I think this is the case. I think the reason is because even though there seemed to be an openness among at least some of the people uh, regarding Jesus's claims about himself, Jesus, I think, could apparently discern that these people had a certain expectation in mind when they thought of what a Messiah would be or what a Messiah would do. 
And I think we know that because of what Jesus says next. So look what Jesus says next. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, that's awesome. That's phenomenal. And then Jesus goes on to say this next thing. So Jesus says to them, well, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, hail yourself. And then you're going to tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So this is interesting. Why does Jesus respond this way? It seems like these people are interested in him. It seems like they're amazed by him. And yet it seems like Jesus comes back and says something kind of sharp to them. So why does he do this? Well, let me tell you, I think Jesus is discerning that these people have a certain idea in their mind. They have a certain expectation in their mind about what a Messiah should be and what a Messiah should do. Look what Jesus says. He says, surely you're gonna quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, some of you might be going, what's that mean? Well, this actually was an idiom that was used in the first century. And what it basically meant was this. It was, oh, you say that you're a doctor, well, then heal yourself, right? Basically, prove it. It'd be like saying, oh, you're a mechanic, fix your own car first. It'd be like saying something like that, right? So they're like, oh, physician, you're the Messiah. Okay, that's fine. Prove it. Prove it. Show us. Notice what they say. Do here in your hometown, do here what we hear you're doing in all these other places, So my guess is that these people probably thought, okay, you're the Messiah, you're Jesus. We know who you are, and you say that you're the Messiah, and we're okay with that, but show it. Do something. Prove it. Do a trick for us, right? Uh, Help the poor. Heal some people. Do a miracle. Eliminate our enemies. Do something for us to show us that you are the Messiah. That's my guess is what they were thinking. And they probably thought to themselves, and you grew up with us. You grew up. This is your hometown, which means that you're our Messiah, right? That means that you're our hometown hero. That means that you don't take your talents down to South Beach. Don't take your talents down to Capernaum. Do it here, right? That's what they were basically saying to him in this moment. And what they would have thought is they would have thought, well, if you're our Messiah, that means that you're going to heal us and you're going to feed us and you're going to make us wealthy and healthy and prosperous because that's what a Messiah does, And let me just tell you that I believe this continues to be an issue with many people today. Is that knowingly or unknowingly, we all have an expectation of what we think Jesus should or should not do for us. It's interesting, on this point, I I was reminded of a conversation I had. Um, So about two years ago, back in 2020, when the stay-home order first came into effect, I remember I had this conversation with my neighbor's mother, And so my neighbor is a sweet lady and her mom comes and stays with her sometimes. And her mom is just this really, really sweet lady. We get a chance to talk ever so often. And she would say, my my neighbor's mom would say that she is not a religious person. That's what she would say. She said, I'm not religious, I don't go to church. But she would say that she believes in God. So she's kind of a spiritual person. And so we have some conversations sometimes. And anyway, I was outside. It was the spring of 2022, it was in my backyard. And she came outside and she said, oh, hey. And I said, oh, hey, how's it going? And she said, good. She said, hey, can I ask you a question? She said, I have a spiritual question. And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's what I do. Sure. I'll, you know, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about? And she said, well, you know, I'm not a spiritual person, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person, but I believe in God. And she said, I've been praying a lot recently, you know, with the pandemic and with COVID. And, and she said, and I just wanted to ask you, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is COVID happening? And then she said this, she said, I've been praying that it would go away. And she goes, and it seems like it's not going away. And then she said, is, this is what she said, is God punishing us? Do you think that we did something wrong and God is punishing us? And then she said this, 
Do you think that we need, are we not praying the right way? Do we need to do something different to make God hear us and make this go away? And I just remember, I was like, wow. I just told her, I said, that is such a good question. And um, I honestly think that you're vocalizing what a lot of us feel internally. And maybe some of us are even scared to vocalize in times like this. I said, but I, I do have to be honest with you. I said, if you're looking for me to give you a specific reason why God is doing that. I can't, I can't, it's way out of my pay grade. I don't know why. And if I claimed that I knew why, I'd be lying to you. I don't know why. But I did tell her, I said, but I said, can I, can I tell you this? Even though I can't give you a specific reason, I said, can I point you to a very specific place that I think reveals to us, maybe not all the answers, but at least God's heart. And I said, I think that the one place you can always look is you can look to the cross and you can look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I said, because I think the cross tells us a lot about sin. What does God believe about sin? I think the cross tells us that whatever God believes about sin, that he's not trying to get us back. On the cross is where he paid for our sin. And then I also said, I think the cross also tells us and the resurrection tells us what pain and suffering, what injustice, what God can do with those things and how he can redeem those things for good. I said, I don't have all the answers, but I just, I know for me, that's a helpful place to look. And I said, I don't know if that helps you. And she said, no, that seems to help a little bit. I said, I, I, you know, that's the best I got for you. And I, you know, I'm, but I understand where you're coming from. And then she said, okay, she said, I got another question for you. She said, I got one more since I got you here. And I said, okay. I said, what is it? She said, what about aliens? <laughs> what does the Bible say about it? And I was like, oh boy, I don't know. I'm not even gonna, only one hard question a day. And, uh, and that was it. But here, here's my point. My point is that behind her question, at least the first one, I think behind her first question, it actually reveals a common conception that a lot of us have about Jesus and an expectation that we have. And it basically goes something like this. We think to ourselves, okay, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really does love us and he really is all powerful, then why is our economy in crisis? Then why is our country divided? Then why are bad things happening to seemingly good people? Why is that happening? So either A, we did something wrong and God is punishing us, or B, he's not powerful enough to stop it, and those are the only two options. And listen, here's what I found. I have found that more people, in my opinion and my experience, have abandoned Jesus and have rejected him because he did not meet or match their expectation than for any other reason. That's what I found in my experience, which actually leads me to the third reason that people resist and reject Jesus, which I think is directly connected to this one, and that's this. It's because of his agenda. It's because of his agenda. So the first reason, his claims. Jesus has some audacious things about himself. Our expectations, we have a certain idea of who we think Jesus should or should not be. And the third reason is because we misunderstand his agenda. We misunderstand. And some of you are asking, well, then what was his agenda? Did you guys ever think about this? Why did he come? Why did Jesus come exactly? What was his agenda? Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says. So look back at Isaiah 61. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So a lot of us would read this and we'd say, well, there it is. That's the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to help the poor. That's why he came. Right? Jesus came to do what? To, to, to free people from captivity. That's why. why. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to heal people. That's why he came. He came to help people. 
And so if people had a physical need, if people had a, if they were in poverty or if they were sick, that's why he came. He came to help people. However, I want you to see that yes, Jesus did those things, but that is actually not the primary reason that he came. In fact, notice, notice in this very passage, do you notice that there are what they call four verbal infinitives? Now, some of you are like, what is that? Four verbal infinitives basically is there's four verbs. And what are they? Well, notice, Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. I have come to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. I have come to set free the oppressed, and I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you notice the four verbs that he gives? Three of them have to do with proclamation. And the word that's used there is also translated preach, proclaim, herald, or announce. And so Jesus says, the reason that the Spirit has come upon me is because I need to announce something. I need to preach something. I need to proclaim something. And so I want you to get this. Yes, Jesus healed people. And yes, Jesus helped people who were in impoverished situations. But I want you to understand that in Jesus's ministry, that was never his priority. That was always something that validated and that was always something that authenticated the message that he was proclaiming. One of the things that you're gonna see throughout the gospels, and you're gonna see this in the gospel of Luke, is that in Jesus's ministry, he was always doing three things. And what were the three things that he was doing? Well, first off, he was preaching the good news about a kingdom. He was saying that he was a king who was coming to bring a kingdom, and he was inviting people to be his disciples, to follow him and to find the forgiveness of sins and to find new life in him. That was the first thing he would do. The second thing that he would do is he would heal people, and he did that. He actually healed people. And the third thing he would do is he would drive out demons. But I want you to understand that of that three-pronged kind of ministry that he did, not all three of them were of equal priority. One of them clearly took primacy. And what was it? It was preaching. It was announcing the good news of the kingdom and inviting people into that kingdom. Just to make my point, I want you to look with me down. You guys have Luke chapter four in front of you. I want you to glance down at verse 42. So what the Bible is gonna say is that Jesus was healing people all night long. So there was an occasion where people were coming to Jesus with sicknesses and with diseases and with disabilities. And the Bible's gonna say that Jesus was healing them, healing them, healing them. All night long, he was healing them. And then look what the Bible says in verse 42. It says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place and the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. So I want you to get this. Jesus is healing people. He's healing people all night long. And the Bible says that people came and found him and they were like, you can't go. There's more people who are sick. There's more people who have illnesses. Everyone is testing positive for COVID. You have to stay here and you have to keep healing people. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching and proclaiming in the synagogues of Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about this. Jesus was 100% effective at healing people. 100%. He would, with a word, with a touch, he could heal people. And yet the Bible says, the Bible says that in this moment, Jesus says, I have to go. I have to go. There's real needs and there's real people. And Jesus says, I know, I know, but I have to go. And the reason is because I must preach about the kingdom. Now, why? Why is it that for Jesus, proclaiming the goodness of the kingdom takes precedence over helping real people with real needs in that moment? Why is that? And can I tell you why I think it is? Here, here's what I'm convinced of. 
It's because Jesus understands something that many of us don't. It's that sin is our greatest illness. Sin is our deepest, most severe problem. And the grace of God and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ is our greatest need. It's our greatest need. And I think what Jesus understands is that. You see, I think what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us to rethink the way we understand poverty, the way we understand sickness, and the way we understand captivity. You know, we, when we say the word poor, when I say that to us, to a room of people in 21st century America, what we tend to think of is we tend to think of someone who is economically and someone who is materially poor. So when we think of poor, we're like, that means you don't have a lot of money. But I want you to understand that back in the Greek and the Hebrew languages, the word poor was much more comprehensive than that. The word poor was talking about a comprehensive state of need. It was not just material and economic. It was actually more than that. And the reason I know that, by the way, is because of the examples that Jesus gives next. So notice what Jesus says to these people. Verse 24, he said, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he gives these examples. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but only to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Then he goes on, he says this. He says, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, some of you are reading that and you're like, okay, I'm confused. What the heck is that talking about? And so let me just kind of help you without getting too deep into it. It's actually referencing two Old Testament prophets, one by the name of Elijah, one by the name of Elisha. Now, if you want to read more about those stories, you can in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. Some awesome stories there, but I won't get too deep into it. But here, Jesus uses both of these guys as an example. And I want you to notice he talks about Elijah. And Elijah would have healed a widow from Zarephath. Now, who is that? Well, when you think of a widow from Zarephath, she would have been poor, like in the way that we think of poor. She would have been economically, she would have been materially, she would have been on the lowest like, tier of the social ladder, she would have been poor. But I also want you to notice with Elisha, he would have healed this guy named Naaman. Now Naaman was a general, he was a Syrian general, which meant that he was wealthy, which meant that he was powerful. He was called a mighty man of valor. He had horses and he had chariots. He had all those things. And yet I want you to notice that Jesus uses both of these examples of people who were considered poor. Both of them are examples of people in poverty. So these are two examples of, of good news for the poor. So what does that reveal to us? I think what it reveals to us is this. All that to say, I think what Jesus is trying to show us is this. So not all poverty is material. Not all poverty is material. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he talks about the poor in spirit. I think what he's telling us is not all slavery is physical, not all slavery. Jesus says in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I think he's telling us that not all illness is medical. Not all illness is medical. Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, he compares sin to sickness. I think he's telling us that not all blindness is visual. Jesus in Matthew 13 says, though seeing, they do not see which is a verse I quote to my kids all the time. Like, dad, where's my thing? Though seeing, they do not see. It's right in front of you, you know? And, and, but he's trying to tell us that, he, listen, here's what I think Jesus is trying to reveal to us, and I believe this. You can be materially rich, and you can still be utterly poor. 
This is a major theme you're gonna see in the Gospel of Luke. Listen, you can have a perfect economy. You can have a totally secure 401k. You can have all the money in the bank and you can be completely bankrupt. It's possible. I think what he's trying to tell us is this, is you can live in a free country and you can still be enslaved. Listen, we can live in a free country and have none of your rights ever infringed upon and yet you can still be a slave to your selfishness and to your pride and to your lust and to your insecurity. It's still possible. I think it's possible that you can, have a per, you can be in perfect physical health. You can have a clean bill of health and yet you can still be sick, a deeper sickness, a spiritual sickness, an internal sickness. Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus can give us all the things that we think we need and we are still in great need. And sometimes I think the reason that Jesus doesn't give us all of the things that we expect him to give us is because he has a very different agenda than we might know. And here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus loves us more than we even know. I think he loves us more than on a temporary plane. I think he loves us deeper than that. And sometimes the most loving thing God can do is shake the things that we place our hope in to show us how uncertain they are and to point us to a greater and a deeper need that's inside of us. So why do we resist Jesus? Well, his claims, our expectations, his agenda. Here's the last one. Last reason I think we resist him is because of our entitlement, because of our entitlement. I wanna show you what happens in the end of this passage. So the Bible says all the people in the synagogue, the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Now, uh, I think this is important that the Bible tells us the people who were mad were the people in the synagogue. Now, why is that important? Okay, so one of the things that is so easy to miss in this passage, you can read right past it, that I think is so important is something that I wanna show you. And like I said, I actually think that this right here is the reason that they tried to throw Jesus off of a cliff. I think this is it right here. This is the reason. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. We looked at this. The spirit of the Lord's on me to proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to, you know, set the, to, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, he's quoting from Isaiah 61, but here's something that you might miss. If you actually look back at Isaiah 61 and compare it with this, what you'll see is that Jesus actually stops the quotation in the middle of a sentence. He stops right in the middle. And I just want you to know, people didn't do that. All right, that'd be like me getting up in front of all of you guys and going, um, okay, you ready? Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder. And then I just walked off. You guys would be like, dude, what you are, you have to finish it. You can't just do that, right? But that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus quotes this passage, a very familiar passage, and he stops in the middle of a verse. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think it's on purpose to make a point. What does the rest of the verse say? Now, can I show you? Here's what Isaiah 61 says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, here's Isaiah 61, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, what's going on here? All right, listen, what Isaiah was saying, what Isaiah was saying is he was saying the Messiah is gonna come. And when the Messiah is gonna come, he's gonna do two things. He is going to bring favor and he is going to bring vengeance. And what the Jewish people believed was that when the Messiah came, that he was basically gonna show favor to the good guys, us, and then he was gonna show vengeance to the bad guys, our enemies. That's what he's here to do. 
But notice that when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, he doesn't mention this part. He leaves that out. Now, why is that? Well, can I tell you what I'm convinced it is? And this is what commentators would say as well. I believe what Isaiah 61 is doing is actually predicting two comings of the Messiah, which is actually exactly what the New Testament teaches. It's exactly what Jesus teaches, and it's exactly what we believe. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. And why did he come? To show favor and to give grace and to offer forgiveness, and he will come again. We believe that with all of our heart. The Messiah will come again, and he will judge the living and the dead. But what Jesus is trying to tell us here, I believe, is he's saying that the reason that he came, the reason that he's here, the reason that he's come the first time is to show favor. Uh, Actually, what, what we see right here is something that scholars sometimes call a prophetic gap. And the idea is that within this verse, even though you have two things that look like they're right next to each other, there's actually an immense amount of time and space between them. Maybe a good illustration of this would be like, do you guys ever look at uh, like some stars in the sky and they look like they're right next to each other? I was actually thinking about this with, um, when I go outside, one of the constellations I always look for is Orion. And I just, I don't know why, it's just the easiest to find. And uh, the reason it's so easy is because of the belt, right? Orion's belt. And I thought this was crazy. Here you have these, just think about these two stars right here. They look like they're right next to each other. They look like they're super, super close. But I actually looked this up. This is how nerdy I am. I actually looked this up. Do you know how far apart these two stars are from each other? These are three quadrillion miles apart from each other. And we're like, no, they're right next to each other. You're like, no, 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 there's so much. And I think what's going on here in this passage is it's telling us that, yes, that this prophecy is going to happen in the future, but these are two different events. And what's this telling us? It's telling us that, yes, that at this coming, Jesus has come not to bring vengeance, but he's come to bring favor. At this coming, Jesus came not to condemn the world, John 3. He came to save it. At this coming, Jesus has not come to punish. He has come to extend grace and forgiveness to his enemies. And he will indeed come again. But today, his agenda in the world is that he wants to proclaim the good news that all are invited to experience the favor and the grace of God. I just want to tell you one other thing that blew me away. When Jesus mentioned Elijah and Elisha, I think that right there was the thing that made them want to throw him over the cliff. And, and I'm just going just to quote to you what N.T. Wright says, one comment, because he said it so well. Here's what N.T. Wright says. Jesus point, points out that what happens in the days of the great prophets Elijah and Elisha And in doing so, he identifies himself with the prophets. Elijah was sent to help a widow. Now, this is what I want you to catch. This is so key. Elijah was sent to to help a widow, but not a Jewish one. Elisha healed one solitary leper, but the leper was the commander of the enemy's army, the enemy. And that's what did it. That's what drove them to fury. Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. That was the issue. Do you want to know what it was that made them want to throw Jesus over a cliff? I'll tell you what it was. It wasn't his claims, as audacious as they were. It wasn't because he failed to perform a miracle for them. Do you want to know what it was? Here's what it was. It was his grace. It was his grace. He's forgiving the wrong people. And that's what made them so furious. You know, I think for so many of us, we like the idea of a God of grace. We like that. A God who forgives us, a God who takes our sin, 
a God who allows us a second chance, a God who gives us eternity. I think we like that for us. But listen, what happens when that same God of grace wants to start forgiving and loving all the wrong people? What happens when this God of grace wants to start extending the same grace to the people that you are convinced are the problem? What happens when God's deepest desire for your enemy is that they would find him and find forgiveness? What happens when God wants to give his grace to the people who are on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the issue or, the, or that group of people? What happens when God wants to forgive and show grace and, and invite into his kingdom even the racist and the bigot and the fundamental conservative or the flaming liberal or whoever it is or your ex or that family member that you refuse to talk to, what happens? And what happens when the same God of grace calls those who follow him to follow him into the same agenda? You see, what happens now is now people want to kill him. That's what happens. You see, what I have found is that it's people like this. It's the people in the synagogue. Come on, let's be honest. It's the people that go to church, man. It's the people who go to services every week who know the Bible really well. It's religious people, come on, like us, like me. What happens sometimes is we start to believe, if we're not careful, that God owes us grace, that we deserve something. We start to believe that. And I'll tell you what happens is one of the clear indications of religion in our heart is when anger begins to spew out of us. Underneath the veneer of religiosity, there's always anger. There's always anger. There's always anger because my expectations aren't being fulfilled. And so what do these people do? What do these people do in their anger towards Jesus? They do the very thing most of us do. They try to eliminate them, him from their life altogether. Here's what the Bible says. They got up, they drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. I mean, it's like, get this in your mind. This is like a parade. They take him out of town, they push him and then they wanted to throw him off of the cliff. And you're like, oh my gosh, how is Jesus gonna get out of this one? I mean, this is a real cliffhanger. Sorry. So, look, I'm a dad of four. I can use dad jokes all day long if I want to. All right, so right on the edge of the cliff, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? Look at this, this is, how awesome is Jesus? Watch this. But he just walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He's like, not today, guys. Not my day. Like, and I don't know about you, but I can't help it. I read this and I'm like, how? How did he like have an invisibility cloak? Did he like go Harry Potter or something? And I'll I, I tell you what I think it was. Here's what I think it was. John 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I give it up freely. I think that's what's happening here. And I think here we see reasons we resist and reject Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band to come up, and as they do, I actually wanna close out our time by inviting you to ask yourself three questions in light of what we just read. And I would encourage us as we worship and we sing, would you just consider these three questions in your own heart? And if you're meeting with someone and going through the Gospel of Luke, maybe just talk through these questions with them. They could be really good. Here's the first one. What is my perception of Jesus? I just want you to ask that. I think this passage is inviting us. It's inviting us to help us sift through 
and think through the way that we view Jesus. How do you perceive him? You know, for, for many of us, maybe for you, you're very familiar with Jesus. Maybe like these people in this passage, you grew up with Jesus. You grew up around Jesus. But maybe for some of us, the version of Jesus that we have is skewed. Maybe we have a hand-me-down version of Jesus. Maybe it's been handed down from our parents or it's been handed down by our religion or it's been handed down by, but could it be possible that maybe we've missed the true Jesus in the midst of that? Maybe you're someone who's investigating Jesus. You're not a Christian, but have you ever really stopped and thought about his claims, the stuff he said about himself? I think it's an invitation to think those things through. You know, maybe for you, quite honestly, even as we're talking right now, Maybe Jesus is, you're seeing him more clearly right now than you've ever seen him before. And if that's the case, can I just invite you? You can follow him. You can, you can accept his call to follow him. You can become his disciple. You don't have to be perfect to do that. You don't have to get your life all together to do that. You can just start following him and let him transform you. Do that today. Second question, what are my expectations of Jesus? This is a good question. I think knowingly or unknowingly, all of us have an expectation of who we think Jesus should be and what he should do for us. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what are my expectations? Maybe just search your own heart. And if you don't know what they are, can I tell you one kind of a shortcut to figure out what they are? I think if you just pay attention to the times that you find yourself angry and frustrated at God, that is a clear window into the expectations that you have. What does the old saying say? You guys have heard it expectations are premeditated resentments. And so if expectations are premeditated resentments, then all you have to do is follow your resentments and it'll show you your expectations. Maybe you just wanna think about that. Lastly is this one. Is his agenda my agenda? For those of us who follow Jesus, this is such an important question. We, we don't come to Jesus with our agenda and say, here it is, bless that. If we're truly following him, we come to him and we say, what's your plan? What's your agenda? What are your desires in this world? And I think for those of us who follow him, we have to ask the question, if Jesus' primary goal, if the primary reason he came was to proclaim to the world the good news of his kingdom, do we share in that same agenda? Do we believe that the greatest need of the hour, the greatest need of the hour, is that people who are far from God know that there is a God who is inviting them to come, to find grace and to find forgiveness, that between his comings, that is his agenda in the world. Yes, we should love people. Yes, we should help people. Yes, we should help the poor. Yes, we should do those things. Yes, 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 yes. But, but ultimately, the greatest need is that people need to know that there is a God who loves them, who is offering them forgiveness. Do we share that agenda? Let's pray together. Well, Lord, I just wanna say thank you for your piercing, penetrating words to us today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you showed grace to all the wrong people, just like me. I pray that we'd be transformed. I pray that you would allow us to see you as you are, not as we want, not as we expect, not as we desire you to be but as you really are. We don't wanna follow a version of you that we created. We wanna follow you. So I pray that in these next moments that you would just speak to us, reveal to us in our hearts, you know, what's our perception of you? What are our expectations and what is our agenda? Just help us to process those things and to bring them to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.